Hi, welcome to Broadway Assembly Church Podcast. We are excited for you to be joining us today. If you want to get a notification of the most recent uploads, please subscribe to our podcast. Thank you for joining us, and we hope you enjoy. Hallelujah. Well, tonight we're going to go into the Word of the Lord for a few minutes. We have been now in this series. This is the 37th week, and uh, we have made it to chapter 17, Revelation chapter 17. We're going to, by God's grace, uh, look at all these 18 verses tonight. We'll try to move along. So we're just going to start out by reading the first five, the first five of Revelation 17, one through five. If you didn't get a uh, study guide, be sure and uh, if if you'd like one, raise your hand. Ushers back there will provide you with one. That way you can follow along tonight. When I was in Bible college, uh, Brother Beam... He always liked to see us writing and taking notes in his class. And he said, there's a relationship uh, between the hand and the mind. If you get your hand working and writing, uh, you might just remember a little bit more or retain a little more. I don't know. For some of us, it'd still take a miracle. <laughs> Amen. Because my forgetter works real good. How about yours? All right, well, before you get too comfortable, let's read Revelation 17, 1 through 5. Revelation 17, 1 through 5. And there came one of the seven angels, which had the seven vials or bowls that we've just talked about the last couple weeks, and talked with me, saying unto me, Come hither, I will show thee the judgment of the great whore that setteth upon many waters with whom the kings of the earth have committed fornication, and the inhabitants of the earth have been made drunk with the wine of her fornication. So he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness, and I saw a woman sit upon a scarlet-colored beast full of names of blasphemy, having, uh, having seven heads and ten horns. And the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet color, and decked with gold and precious stones and pearls, having a golden cup in her hand, full of abominations and filthiness of her fornication. And upon her forehead was a name written, Mystery Babylon, the great, the mother of harlots and abominations of the earth. Heavenly Father, thank you. Once again, for the revelation that you revealed to John, thank you, Lord, for the time we've been able and allowed to spend in this book. I pray it is enriching our lives. I pray that it will inspire us once again tonight and instruct us, enlighten us, Lord, to see the importance of being a part of the true church, not the false church but the true church. And Lord, we just ask for your direction as we speak from your word once again. In Christ's precious name, everybody say amen. 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 God bless you. You can be seated. 
We've called this uh, lesson tonight just simply the Church of Babylon. Chronologically speaking, we're now very uh, near the end of the seven-year tribulation here in the book of Revelation. However, we have commonly saw throughout our study that there are times when a statement is made in the book of Revelation that requires a little more information. And so in John's revelation, it's like the end time events race across the monitor screen of human history in fast motion. But then a slow motion button is pushed. It's pressed and we're then given a lot of details and behind the scenes info regarding the unfolding events. So we have called this pause button, this slow motion button that's been pressed multiple times in the book of Revelation. We've called it a parenthetical section. Okay, so tonight we are entering I believe uh, it'd be one of the final parenthetical sections in the book of Revelation. Notice on your study guide, chapters 17 and 18 are the slow motion button where we're shown the details of Babylon in living color. Chapter 17 shows us Babylon's religious system and her demise. Okay, that's what we're going to deal with tonight. Chapter 18, Lord willing, Lord Terry's next Wednesday, we'll talk about and be shown Babylon's commercial system and her destruction. So you got a religious, and then you've got a commercial side to Babylon. And you know, by the way, there's a total uh, in, on your handout there of 404 verses in the book of Revelation. And out of the 404 verses, 44 of them, Everybody say 44. 44. 44 of them have to do with Babylon. So 11% of the book of Revelation is devoted to the subject of this spiritual Babylon. In fact, more attention is given to Babylon in the book of Revelation than the new heaven and new earth. And you say, well, why? Honestly, most believers would want, to want more information about heaven, right? And so you ask, why, why the disproportion? Well, obviously, the Scripture doesn't speak to that, but I personally believe it's because we can't understand too much about heaven because it's just indescribable. It is mind-blowing, right? But we'd better understand the nature of Babylon lest we fail and fall prey to Babylon's chaos and confusion. And by the way, the Hebrew meaning of the word Babel or Babylon simply means confusion. So, we start here in chapter 17 with Babylon's corrupt spiritual system. And this spiritual system is being portrayed to John, and then John relates it to us, portrayed as a 
prostitute. Now the name Mae West may or may not sound familiar. I, I hear some uh, responses, so I think some of you have heard that name before. For those, if it don't ring a bell, Mae West was one of the early bad girls of Hollywood. She played risque roles. She wrote sassy and sensual scripts long before it was commonly accepted even in Hollywood. In fact, on one occasion, one of her Broadway plays was raided by the police. And they actually came in and arrested her for, quote, corrupting the morals of our youth in New York City. Isn't that interesting? And she was sentenced to 10 days, to 10 days in the New York jail. I said, wow, if they did that today, there wouldn't be many actors left in Hollywood. Someone said of Mae West that she climbed the ladder of success wrong by wrong. She became a star by being a prostitute. And so now I, I say all that to say this. In today's passage, we find the Mae West of the Bible. She's the biblical bad girl. A spiritual prostitute. We read in verse 5, she's given an unflattering name. Mystery. Babylon the Great. The mother of harlots. Abominations of the earth. So this prostitute of Babylon is, what is it? It's not a single woman. No. You need to think of it as, notice on your study guide, a false religious system that rises in prominence in the last days, and it is in league with Satan's one world leader, a.k.a. the Antichrist. Now, before we go on, we need to be reminded, how many know that Satan has never had an original idea? Never. His desire has always been to steal the worship from God, and he does so by mimicking, imitating, and copycatting God. God has a Savior, which is Christ, but now so does Satan, the Antichrist. God sends the Holy Spirit to draw people to the Savior. Satan sends his false prophet to lure men to worship the beast. We learned that. God is preparing his church as a pure, virtuous bride for his son Jesus, right? Whereas Satan's beast is preparing an unfaithful, compromised church system that God, in our text, calls 
a prostitute. So what we find here is that one day in the future, more so than even now, Satan will have his own church. Right? How many know it's a false church? He's building it right now. His church may have a 501c3 nonprofit status, may even be seen as a charitable organization. You know, supposedly a good thing. But John says that she's holding a cup of abomination and filthiness. May West's autobiography is titled, Goodness Had Nothing to Do With It. That will be true of this end times spiritual system. Goodness and godliness has nothing to do with the church of Babylon. Now, let's recap for just a moment. Throughout the Bible, how many can recall that God always speaks of himself as he, male? And he speaks of his people as she, female. In the Old Testament, God is the husband. Israel is the bride, the wife. In the New Testament, Christ is the groom and the church is the bride. Recall Revelation chapter 12 that the woman with the wreath of 12 stars, we said that was God's people, Israel. She represented Israel. She gave birth to a man child. Remember that? That was back in chapter 12. And as in a marriage, God expects trust, he expects loyalty, he expects fidelity and faithfulness from his people. How many know that? We're to reserve our hearts, lives, and bodies for God alone. In fact, this is the nature of real worship. I was thinking this week, we realize that every human being is really a worshiper at heart. We all live for a reason. We're all channeling our affections. We're all channeling our ambitions in a particular direction. Whatever is at the end of that path is the object of our worship and becomes our functional God, so to speak. In the Old Testament, God demanded Israel's loyalty. In the New Testament, Christ expects us to reserve our hearts for him only as well. And in Scripture, when either Israel or the church strayed and compromised in their commitment, God interpreted that as spiritual adultery or fornication. It's, it's the betrayal of a spouse. So from God's perspective, spiritual compromise is equal to marital infidelity and because they both involve a sellout in a sense. You swap your integrity and your relationship with God for convenience or for a moment of pleasure or in the case, in this case of our text, this, this Babylonian system trades status and monetary gain just so they can become influential. And I want us to observe here tonight, notice on your study guide, six characteristics of the false system of spiritual Babylon that's provided for us in chapter 17. Six characteristics of this religious Babylonian system. First, number one, are you ready? 
I want us to notice her influence. Somebody say influence. Verse 1 tells us that she sitteth upon many waters. Now, on down in verse 15, we're told that the waters, because the best commentary on the Bible is the Bible itself. So if you go on down to verse 15, the waters, it says, are peoples, multitudes, nations, and tongues. We saw it earlier how the Antichrist says will rise up out of the sea. That's actually a sea of humanity. So in other words, there will arise a religious unity that will begin to influence most of the world. Notice verse 2 says that she is one with whom the kings of the earth committed acts of immorality and those who dwell on the earth were made drunk with the wine of her immorality. Now imagine, can you imagine for just a moment this world, this community without any true believers? I want you to realize there is coming a time after the rapture has taken place Every Christian will be gone, right? That means sin will be unleashed like never before because the restraining influences of godliness will be no more. Religion will not have slowed down either, believe it or not, because the world will be drunk with both sin and idolatry. Think about it. Many religious systems of worship will even carry on like nobody's business after even the rapture. They'll carry on and not even miss a beat. I dare say many Protestant churches will carry on. Catholic churches will conduct their mass as usual. The Mormon church won't skip a beat. Islam, Hinduism, Buddhism, Judaism, they'll all continue. The missing element is the true salt of the earth, right? And the genuine believer in Christ will have been raptured, and, and the only religious people left behind, they'll be just religious. And they won't care really about the Bible so the world will be able to move with lightning speed at unifying as doctrine is discarded with delight. You know, when the World Council of Churches organized back in Amsterdam in 1948, one of its aims was to bring all branches of Christianity, and I use the word Christianity very loosely there. But it said one of its aims is to bring all the branches of Christianity together, including Protestant, Roman Catholic, Eastern Orthodox, under one organization. Well, how you, all their dreams will come true when the rapture takes place. The religions of the world will unite in one confused Tower of Babel, so to speak. How many know Babylon was actually birthed out of the Tower of Babel? The story of the Tower of Babel isn't about humans trying to build the tallest tower in the world. 
No, it's really a story about men attempting to be God. And God having to come down and put them in their place. When people unify around a religious cause, they're willing to give up their lives to that cause. And, to, and for that bond of unity. And when political causes are wedded to religious causes, how many know you've got the makings of even a world empire? And in Scripture, a guy by the name of Nimrod is seen as the founder of the Tower of Babel and was later deified as Babylon's chief god and renamed Marduk, or Marduk, however you pronounce it. Herodias, or Herodias, I believe is the way the computer pronounces it. He was a Roman historian, and he traveled through Babylon and saw a statue that they had made to Nimrod. And that one statue weighed 22 tons, and it was solid gold. Now, come on, in today's economy, that one statue would be worth more than $600 million. It's a little more than I got in my bank account. What about you? Babylon was serious about their religious cause, right? So we've got this bogus church this spiritual prostitute whose plan is to seduce the world. She's a faith community, but her faith is in the beast. So she's going to uh, mutate into a one-world religion and become the fastest-growing church ever, the Church of the Antichrist. She is the last day's church after the real church has been raptured. Statistics I read have shown in recent past that the growth of Christianity here in America has what they call plateaued. Uh, but how many know that doesn't mean people today are becoming less religious? Because the fact is, religious is on the upswing. Religion is on the upswing. Many could be described as cafeteria-style believers. In other words, they pick and choose aspects of their faith that suits their tastes. Anything that offends them, they leave off their plate. Does that make sense? This is the growing trend among many in America. People are rejecting the restraints of Orthodox Christianity to create their own designer religion. Some time ago, a Pew Research poll showed that six in ten professing Christians now deny the exclusiveness of Christ, saying there are many roads to God. Christ is not the only one. Listen, folks. Like a prostitute, some Christians have sold out their Savior for the favors of this world. Right? So when the true church gets raptured, there will be churches that will continue their normal operations. It'll be Sunday as usual in a lot of churches because not everyone who professes Christ is a genuine believer. Christ told us that in Matthew chapter 7. Newsflash, notice on your study guide, profession doesn't guarantee possession. Right? 
It'll be shocking how much of Christendom will be left behind after the true believers are raptured. Liberal theologians, hypocritical church leaders, appeasing, compromising pastors. How many know they're all going to be left behind? And once all the narrow-minded fundamentalists who take the Bible literally... Like us, we're out of the way. It'll be easy for all these new progressive leaders to justify further compromises of the fundamental truths of Christianity. And biblical Christianity is going to be gutted. Absolutely gutted of its imperatives and blended with all kinds of religious ideas. The prostitute of Babylon will be an all roads lead to God kind of movement. Right? How many know we've got that movement Picking up steam in America. This is the warning, I think, that Paul told Timothy about in 1 Timothy chapter 4. He says, Now the Spirit speaketh expressly that in the latter times some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. This great religious uh, harlot that the Scripture is referring to will be the chief perpetrator of deception and demonic doctrines. This prostitute of Babylon will be the ultimate triumph of tolerance and open-mindedness. She'll attract pseudo-Christians and Muslims and Jews and Hindus and Buddhists and New Agers. Everyone, she will attract them into one ecumenical bed of belief. Hmm. Did you hear me? If the church of Babylon has a church bus, it'll sport one of those. You ever seen the coexist bumper stickers? That's what it's about. Back in Revelation chapter 2, verse 22, in his letter to the church of Thyatira, Christ warned that he would cast those who committed adultery into great tribulation unless they repented. He's talking about committing adultery with this Babylonian religious system. And I, believe the, I believe fake Christians of both Catholic and Protestant traditions will help make up this, this immoral system that the Bible calls it a harlot. All right, secondly. Secondly, notice her partnerships notice her partnerships not only have we seen her influence but verse 3 let me read verse 3 again you got time so he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness and i saw a woman sit upon a, a scarlet colored beast okay so she's become a partner with the beast Revelation 13 identifies this, this beast as the Antichrist, which is the, the ruler, the satanic savior during the tribulation. And this harlot rises to prominence on the back of the beast. Now, the fact that this harlot is seen riding on the beast is John's way of saying that she's made an alliance with the beast. Like... History tells us the Christian churches in Germany who early on supported Hitler and the Nazis. The church in the Great Tribulation will also sell her soul for a ride on the beast. And this false church will supply the Antichrist, notice on your study guide, with a religious sanction. 
and in return, he'll catapult her to worldwide power and prestige. The partnership between the beast and this false Babylonian system known as the harlot is going to be a marriage made in hell. Thirdly, notice the wealth of this unified religion. Verse 4 tells us, purple and scarlet clothing is what she's dressed in. Now, that was the most expensive thread you could own in John's day. Because, do you know, purple, they only got the color purple by taking thousands of small, a certain kind of sea snail. This certain kind of sea snail uh, emitted purple dye. And so they had to go catch them and harvest them. I guess you don't have to have much to catch a snail. You don't have to be very fast. Never mind. But they would harvest them. That's probably a better word. Out of the sea, the whole Mediterranean region, and have to go through a process. And so in John's day, one ounce of purple dye would cost more than one pound of gold. One ounce of purple dye cost more than a pound of gold. And so the religion that captures the world's attention will be immensely elaborate and awe-inspiring and wealthy. This woman is decked out in things that heaven will have in abundance. Gold, precious stones, pearls. It makes us realize that really compared to heaven, the religions of this world will just look like trinkets. But the, but the thing I want you to understand is this, this prostitute in this text is no street walker. She's a high-priced call girl who's decked out. Her seductions and her compromises have gained her privileged status. Hmm. Number four, notice, fourthly, her perversion. Now, I want you to remember, all of her perversion started where? Back in Babylon. The source of organized rebellion and creature worship and universe adoration, devotion to Demonic-inspired idolatry. All of that flows out of Babylon. Now, the text says she's the mother of harlots. And then notice verse 5 says that her name is on her forehead. Now, I thought this interesting to note that the common prostitute Back in the first century, and it was a flourishing legal profession then in John's day, but they said they would wear their name on a scarf around their head or on a colorful headband. This is how she advertised. This was her attempt to be remembered and called by, uh, again, by her name. So this spiritual harlot seeks to be remembered and desired, clearly identified in verse 5 as Babylon the Great. Just as God, now, 
Just as God has a headquarters on earth, how many know we find in the book of, of Revelation that in a sense, Jerusalem is the headquarters. It's like the command center. Okay? But how many know Satan likewise has a mission control center? And a lot of people think it's in hell. As if the demons are huddling in the corner of the flames of hell, mapping out their strategies. I think that's the farthest thing from the truth. Hell is the last place Satan and his demons want to be. Hello. Right now, they're not confined to hell. Their headquarters is right here on earth. And even more specifically, Babylon. Genesis 11 identifies, let's, let's, once again, I, I talked a little bit about Babylon, but let's go back for a minute here. Babel was the site of the first satanic overthrow attempt. The first global revolt against God. And as I said, the guy by the name of Nimrod, whose name means, Nimrod actually means we will rebel. How appropriate, right? He rallied against God. He convinced the masses that even though God promised to never flood the earth again, he convinced the masses that God couldn't be trusted. So doubt God, trust Nimrod became the campaign slogan, so to speak. And it worked because at Babel, they began to build this waterproof tower in the midst of the desert because if, if God tried another flood, they'd, they wanted to be ready. But how many know it really stood for a religion created by man? And through their own efforts, mankind, the idea was to ascend unto God's throne. And Nimrod's followers would become, he told them anyway, they would become as wise as God. And Nimrod promised enlightenment and self-deification. How many know that's Satan's promise even still today? Amen. How many know in our present culture the lie is, you can be your own God? Ah, hmm? oh, we're all basically good. Just, you just got to discover your inner self. You just got to discover your inner God. How many know religion still tries to build a tower to God? Different religions might have different rules, but all religions are about constructing a way for man to climb above his own reach and get to God. And so it, it all can be traced back to Babylon. And this is why the harlot of the last days is called the mother of harlots and abominations. She's the source. And in the end, how many know all of her chicks are going to come home to roost? All the variants of Nimrod's lies are going to return to mama, so to speak. Because number five, notice, fifthly, her agenda. Since ancient Babylon until now, false religion has caused one bloodbath after another. And now by the time of the tribulation, this woman is actually portrayed as drunk. Totally inebriated by the blood of Christians. 
the creed of this religious harlot has been believe in anything but Jesus or we'll kill you. Right? Every faith is shown tolerance except faith in Jesus. Oh, how many have seen that today? Given current attitudes, this is one prophecy that's probably one of the easiest to believe in the book of Revelation. Today, Jesus is where the world takes offense. Talk about God and folks will applaud. But if you say Jesus, in Jesus' name, boy, they want to shut you up. All right? Jesus is and will be the line of demarcation between real Christianity and this harlot's bogus brand. John continues into verse 6 saying that when he saw her, this mother of harlots, he, he marveled in amazement. And then the angel follows through with an explanation. And the angel tells John that the beast will ascend out of the bottomless pit and then go into perdition. His origin and his destiny is perdition or hellfire. And the rise of this beast will be a source of astonishment to the people of the earth. And we go on down to verse 9. He said, here is the mind which is wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sitteth. Now we're getting some details. Because almost universally in the writings of antiquity, the city on seven hills was a synonym for where? Anybody remember? Rome. That's right, Rome. Verse 18 identifies this city as the great city which reigns over the kings of the earth. In John's day, the emperors ruled from the capital city of Rome. This means that in the last days, this harlot sitting on the beast will be a religious system based where? In Rome. That's what it looks like. Revelation 13, we see a connection between Rome and this last day's beast. Daniel chapter 9, as well as other passages, inform us that the Antichrist will lead a revived what empire? Roman Empire. In John's day, Rome dominated the world. That's before it fractured into various kingdoms. For a time, the angel said, it is not. For a time, it is not. Now today, we see a resurgence of nations that make up Ancient Rome. I believe that the European Union is the Rome that the angel says yet is. You know, one of the prominent symbols of the European Union is a woman riding a beast. It's a bull. You can find it uh, today on a German phone card. You can find it on the back of a $2 uh, Euro, coin. The statue outside the European Parliament is a woman riding a beast. Now, the world is being prepared to accept the last day's harlot of Revelation 17. Her home will be in Rome. Do you want to take it a bit further? Come on. What, what worldwide religious system is headquartered today in Rome? Roman Catholic Church. 
This is the observation that has led many people to connect this harlot in the text to Roman Catholicism. And man, we get persecuted for it. Pastor from Texas, John Hagee. He's a pretty prominent pastor. They hate him for it because it's the way he teaches. And what makes this even more pro provocative is that over the centuries, the Roman Catholic religion has integrated many countless pagan and Babylonian, I say Babylonian practices into their tradition. Do you know the Pope's title? Pontiff Maximus, or high priest, was the name taken from the Babylonian priesthood. Practices like the use of, of icons and, and, and uh, the celibacy of priests and nuns and the whole idea of purgatory, Lent, holy water, mass, the veneration of Mary, salvation by sacrament, can all be traced to Babylonian paganism. It's not traced to the Bible. Mm -mm. So yet, you say, well, pastor, do you believe the religious harlot of Revelation 17 is exclusive the Roman, exclusively the Roman Catholic Church? No, I think this harlot will be much broader than any one church or religion, but that will be a big part of it, but I believe there's going to be a combination or consolidation of all religions into a global one. And it's going to be used by the Antichrist to, to, to seduce the world into worshiping him. Verse 10 tells us there's also seven kings. Not only are the seven heads seven hills, they represent seven kings. Five had fallen, they said. One is, the other has not yet come. So we have five world-spanning empires preceded the first century and John writing the book of Revelation. You have Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Persia, and Greece. That's the five. The world empire that existed at the time was Rome. Since Rome, many men have tried to rule the world, right? Look through the history books. Attila the Hun, Charlemagne, Genghis Khan, Napoleon, Adolf Hitler, Stalin. How many know none of them were able to do what they wanted to do. Yet, there is one more world empire yet to come. John writes, and when he comes, he says it's going to continue for a short time. Everybody say short time. Because when the Antichrist unifies a fractured world under the support of a new Rome, his reign is going to be brief. Daniel tells us um, it will last the seven years of the tribulation which is really a drop in the bucket compared to the previous six empires. Oh, I, I need to go back to verse 11. It says, And the beast that was and is not, even he is the eighth, and is of the seven, and goeth into perdition. So the seventh beast is the revived, I believe, Roman Empire. The eighth is its leader, which is the Antichrist himself. And both are bound, the text says, for hell or perdition. Verse 12, 
And the ten horns which thou sawest are ten kings, which have received no kingdom as yet, but received power as kings one hour, one hour with the beast. So it looks like this Antichrist is going to establish ten provinces. He'll appoint subordinates to, to help him. But John says they're not going to reign very long. And, and, and so don't waste your time looking at today's political landscape for the configuration. This really happens at, towards the end uh, of the tribulation, I, I believe. And these kings, John says, is not going to last long. Verse 13 says they are one mind, and they will give their power and authority to the beast. These ten kings are going to drink the Kool-Aid. They'll sell their soul to the beast, and they'll, they're used to catapult the beast into pl even greater political power. But yet, talk about hitching your wagon to the wrong horse. They find themselves, in verse 14, in a very fearful position. Verse 14, these shall make war with the Lamb, and the lamb shall what? Oh, somebody say he's going to overcome them. For he is Lord of lords, king of kings, and they that are with him are called, chosen, and faithful. That's you, and that's me. Praise God. So the beast and his ten buddies are Christ's foes, at the Battle of Armageddon. God put down Nimrod, the first Babylonian revolt, by confusing the languages and dispersing the people. Remember reading? Reading about that? But he destroys the final Babylon by, by gathering the nations together in the plain that we talked about last week of Megiddo to make war with the Lamb. And we'll study more about that battle later on, I believe, in chapter 19. So let's get back into 15 here. And he saith unto me, The waters which thou sawest, where the horse setteth, are peoples, multitudes, nations, and tongues. So, put simply, the, this, this is what I want you to notice. This harlot is going to cast a worldwide web. And then, one more step, I want you to see, number six, finally notice her ultimate destruction. Verse 16, and the ten horns which thou sawest upon the beast, these shall hate the whore. Hmm, that's interesting. Shall make her desolate, naked shall eat her flesh, and burn her with fire. So this ten kingdom federation and the Antichrist will now, towards the end of the tribulation, have no need of her anymore as the antichrist unveils his image and desecrates the holy place as scripture says this one world church is going to be replaced most believe around the middle of the tribulation period even as, as soon as that when the antichrist is going to claim to be god set himself up to be worshiped alone and what happens then is we find this wealthy worldwide religious system being devoured, being destroyed, being disgraced, 
because more than likely she's become so powerful. She now becomes a threat to the Antichrist himself. So now they're actually competition. Because how many know the devil knows nothing about unity? He's always about division, right? And the Antichrist is no longer going to need her, and he'll discard her once and for all. Notice verse 17. For God hath put in their hearts to fulfill his will. So the return to Babylon, this religion of Babel, how many know that's all part of the plan of God? The coming final conflict between Babylon and Jerusalem, the two great cities of God, uh, cities of Scripture, that's all part of God's redemptive plan. God is the author of this tale of two cities, Jerusalem and Babylon. From Genesis to Revelation, the purpose of God will be fulfilled. How many know you can bank on it? You can depend on it? Because even in your life right now, no matter the struggles, no matter the suffering, the chaos or the conflict, God's purposes for you will be fulfilled perfectly on time and with such future glory we cannot even begin to imagine. That final conflict will be won as the city of Jerusalem defeats the city of Babylon and Christ will reign on King David's throne. So irony of ironies, the beast and his buddies will turn on the harlot and after they will use her up, they'll spit her out and the fake church left on earth after the rapture who ceased being Christian to appease the world and avoid persecution, where does all of this compromise get them? Nowhere. They are now cast aside, stripped, and burned. Oh, I don't want to be part of that church. I said, I don't want to be part of the Babylonian church. Okay, let's recap. So here's the, here's the possible progression. So for the first half of the final seven years, the Antichrist is, is hailed as a man of peace. Jews, Gentiles are getting along. For the first half, the false prophet and the religious harlot spread the message that all roads lead to God. Everyone can peacefully coexist. But midpoint of the tribulation, the Antichrist begins to reveal his true colors. He defiles the temple in Jerusalem, claims to be God. At that moment, the harlot of the text is no longer needed. From now on, the only religion allowed is the worship of the beast. And to secure that worship... The Antichrist blackmails the world. And to participate in his commercial system, he takes, it takes his mark in your right hand or in your forehead, which the number is 666. Those who refuse to take the mark will either starve to death or be martyred, most likely. And so chapter 17 has shared with us the rise and the fall of religious Babylon. Chapter 18 is going to show us the rise and the fall of commercial Babylon. Last days, Rome includes this world religion and yet a world economy, right? Understand religion is a matter of the heart, but where your treasure is, your heart will be also. That's why the Babylonian religion 
and the Babylonian commercial side is so intertwined. Separated, chapter 17, religious side, 18, commercial side. More on that next week, Lord willing. Let's stand together in conclusion. All right. We've talked a lot about the false church tonight. It's a false Babylonian belief system. But I want us to conclude by rejoicing in the fact there is a true church. Hallelujah. How many want to make sure you're members of the true church? Hmm? That's the church Christ died for. That's the church triumphant. It's the church that will rise to meet the Lord in the air before all this breaks loose around the globe. Oh, I want to keep my eyes on the eastern skies. He could come back anytime. And oh, we've seen the ugliness of the church of Babylon. I want you to get a hymn book and turn to page 558. I want us to be reminded of the glories of the true church. The true church, right? I don't think we've sung this song this year yet. It's a glorious church without spot or wrinkle. Right? Well, I'm going to find it here in a minute. Because the writer of this hymn becomes so passionate about the true church. I believe that's why he titled it, It's a Glorious Church. It's a glorious church without spot. Oh, why don't somebody raise your hands and say thank you for making me a part of the glorious church. How many know it's because of the blood of Jesus? Hallelujah. Do you hear them coming, brother? Thronging up the steeps of life. Clad in glorious shining garments. Blood-washed garments pure and white. Oh, tis a glorious church without spot or wrinkle. Washed in the blood. Oh, hallelujah. Tis a glorious church without spot or wrinkle. Washed in the blood of the Lamb. Well, wave the banner, shout His praises. For our victory is nigh. Oh, we shall join our conquering Savior. And we shall reign with Him. It's not going to be too long. It's a glorious church. Washed in the blood of the Lamb. Tis a glorious church without spot or wrinkle. Washed in the blood of the Lamb. I like this. So never fear the clouds of sorrow. Never fear the storms of sin. For we shall triumph on the morrow. 
saved, even now our joys begin. Oh, it's a glorious church without spot or wrinkle, washed in the blood of the Lamb. Oh, it's a glorious church without spot or wrinkle, 